Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Jonathan Littell, a Franco-American writer and journalist, about war crimes in today's world, fascism and Putinism, and about Ukrainian and Russian societies. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of UkraineWorld.org, one of the most popular websites in English about Ukraine run by Ukrainians. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Jonathan Littell is an author of the best-selling novel The Kindly Ones, a story of a Nazi SS officer on the Eastern Front during the World War II. Litzel has also reported on the wars in Chechnya, Syria and Ukraine. We spoke in Lviv, a city in western Ukraine, at the Lviv Book Forum two days before Russia's massive round of missile strikes on Ukrainian cities in October. The series Thinking Dark Times aims to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, let's start. Jonathan Littell, thanks so much for joining this podcast. You're welcome. Hello. I'm a big adm- admirer of your Le Bienveillant, as many people in the world. When you were writing this novel, did you consider it as a warning? Mm, no, I don't think that was what I was thinking about at the time. It was more like an exploration, I think and trying to understand certain things and how they function. Because I remember Tim Snyder wrote a book about Holocaust, and he called it Black Earth, Holocaust as History and Warning. And I, for me personally, it's very important to look in the past uh, and trying to learn some lessons. It sounds naive probably in this you know, postmodern world or post-postmodern world. Do you do you also consider this as writing about the past or no? I'm not really sure. I mean, uh, Tim Snyder obviously is a historian, so he has a very different and specific perspective than than I have. I consider myself a novelist. I mean, that's you know, the book I wrote is a novel, and I think the objectives are not quite the same. I mean, I used the work of many historians when I was writing my book, obviously. Uh, I didn't do primary research myself, as Tim would do. Um, But what I was interested in was other aspects, and especially aspects that are linked to the human psyche and social functioning, which I approached from different... Uh, perspective than a historian or a sociologist would, um, a more literary one, obviously, but also a more intuitive one. I mean, I don't necessarily think my intuitions have any validity except as literature. They're just propositions that I put out and that people can use or not use or refute. So I think it's, you know, what I do or did is very different from what a historian would do in the in the purpose I don't really have a purpose except for myself just to understand as I said at the beginning to understand things in a way that satisfies me 
when I uh, when I uh, give your novel, for example, to uh, to my students, I also give uh, a text by Hannah Arendt, and uh, I invite them to compare what you're doing and what Hannah Arendt was doing with this concept banality of evil. But currently, with this war with Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine. I'm a little bit less comfortable with this concept, banality of evil. I think if we describe evil only as a, as a consecutive implementation by banal persons who don't think about the responsibility, we don't find an answer where does evil come from. Do you think about these concepts and do you, do you see your character uh, in the novel, your major character, as this kind of illustration of this idea of banality of evil? Well, no, he's certainly not an illustration of anything because I don't like illustration as a concept even. Uh, he's not a thesis, he's a, he's a tool. He's a pilot fish, you know, through the system for me. Um, the, the problem, I mean, I've got two problems with the banality of evil term and my first biggest problem is with the term evil, which is really a term I don't like and I try not to use. Because for me, it's, it's, it's not that it's completely meaningless, but it only has meaning within a theological framework, which being a complete atheist is kind of meaningless to me. Um, I mean, things are evil in their consequences but I don't believe in in incarnated evil in imminent evil as a thing evil is just a description like the word bad just more strong so you know when something horrible is done it is evil from the point of view of the victims but I, I don't believe in any like uh, you know good and evil for me are, are just religious concepts or theological concepts um, crime, for me, for instance, is a much more real concept than evil. I mean, because crime is implying a very specific normative judgment. Society allows this and does not allow that. Um, and then we set up rules and laws and international law to define crime. And so then we can say this is a crime. And this is all very concrete. And so I'm more comfortable with this kind of concrete approach to violence, I mean, violence permeates everything in this world, nature. I mean, nature is insanely violent. Everything is constantly trying to kill everything else to survive. This is what nature is. And we as humans are part of nature in this sense. So the, the instinct for violence, the fact that we eat meat and that we kill animals every day to eat, um, you know, we're, we're part of this endless, insane violence permeating the planet. What distinguishes human societies from animals is precisely what I was just referring to, this whole concept of norms, of rules, of limits to behavior, so that we keep things within a framework which is acceptable, even if this framework might change over time. It's quite possible that in 100 years, people will look back on the 20th century, the 21st century, and go, people really ate meat? Is that even possible? I mean, I eat meat, so, you know, I'm not, but it's quite possible that that norm will shift in the coming 100, 200 years to the point where meat eating in the 21st century will look as insane 
as witch burning in the 16th century looks to us. I think that 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 is leading us to that, and what is leading us to that is the idea that not only humans are moral subjects, that nature is also a moral subject, that we have certain responsibility with regard to nature. Living creatures are moral subjects, and I think the biggest uh, one of the biggest dilemmas of the 21st century is to uh, understand where the the border of this, because we cannot really extend it to all living creatures. Exactly. Yeah. The, the problem is one of balance. Um, but anyway, we strayed a little bit far from the banality of evil. Although we could consider the concept of banality as applied to, for instance, slaughterhouse workers who are spending their days killing animals, uh, often in very cruel and bloody ways. You know, we could, we could try to look at that as another illumination. I really like Hannah Arendt's book. I mean, I find it's a fascinating book and a very useful book. Because I think what she pointed, I mean, I think the title created so much misunderstanding about her and about the book and about her objective. But really what she was trying to say, looking at the Eichmann case, is that fundamentally um, these guys are not bloodthirsty monsters because we always imagine bad guys as bloodthirsty monsters. I mean, you take Schindler's List, which is a, f a film I despise completely. Uh, in Schindler's List, as I remember, I, only, I walked out of it, actually, so I only saw the first half. I was so offended by the film. But I do remember the camp commander sort of sleeping with a prostitute and then going to his balcony and taking a rifle and shooting some prisoners for fun and then going back. I don't know if he fucks the girl again or not, but you know, this is such a caricature of what these people were like. I mean, they just weren't like that. There were one or two of them, uh, specifically Koch and his wife in Buchenwald who were like that. And they actually were punished by the Nazi system. Koch was hung, his wife was put in jail for their excesses. This was forbidden within the system. Uh, the much more typical camp commander, someone like Rudolf Hoess, who is a good family man with a wife and children that he goes home to every day after his dirty work in the camp, bringing the underwear and fur coats of dead Jewish girls that he's just killed to his wife and clothes from dead Jewish children that he's just killed to his children because they're nice clothes and they'll look good in them. You know, and I think this is what Hannah Arendt was trying to get to with the Eichmann case, is that these are normal people. They're normal they're not abnormal, they're not pathological. You can't explain mass crime and mass violence by pathology. It's an insufficient explanation because it's just not how it works. If it was only psychopaths, like the serial killers that we occasionally get here and there, or, or like this policeman that just went crazy in Thailand and killed 36 kids, you know, if that was all it was, we wouldn't have massive wars and war crimes because it's insufficient. There are not enough pathological people for this to happen. So these things that we're now seeing in Ukraine are being done by normal people. It's just that the conditions that they are in, the place they come from, their education, the propaganda, their state, the whole mechanisms have brought them to the point of doing what they're doing. But they are normal people. But I will explain you why I have problems with this, even with this interpretation of the banality of evil. Uh, I think that it doesn't explain us where, where the origin is. It explains us the mechanics of it, how it is implemented. But for example, it doesn't explain us what 
in French culture, and I, I really am very suspicious to this element of French culture, is the concept of trans transgression, mm -hmm. right? When, when you kind of romanticize the idea of crossing the border, crossing the moral borders and crossing any other borders. And I think at a certain point in a society, you have this feeling. You have this feeling in Italian fascism, obviously. You have this feeling in German Nazism, an idea that, look, the freedom means crossing the moral borders, means that you're more free when you're more violent. And in a sense, I see it also in the Russian society and uh, this propaganda that, uh, that is spreading. So in, in Hannah Arendt was, you know, fighting against this romantic concept of, of evil, and I'm absolutely right. Uh, she's absolutely right in this. But uh, I think she underestimates that this kind of romanticization of evil is anyway at the origins of, of big crimes. Yes, but for me, that's only the form. It's only the, the uh, you know, there's this great distinction in psychoanalysis between um, content and process. And for me, that's romanticism you're discussing, the uniforms, the symbols, that's just the content, which is interchangeable because you have very different content in Stalinist Soviet Union, but you have the same process at work. So what's interesting is trying to get to the root of the process. How do people get to this point? For me, the answer as a conclusion, after all the work I did in my book, specifically with the case of the Second World War, we'll get to Russia now, but I think the explanation could be valid to a certain extent, is trauma, social trauma, on an incredibly massive scale. Um, it's very difficult for us today, even with what's going on today in Ukraine, to imagine the scale of World War I. I mean, the, just the sheer quantity of the slaughter that went on every day on the East Front and the West Front in World War I is just insane. Um, if we look at the societies that consciously decided between World War I and World War II that the mass murder of groups of human beings was an acceptable solution to social problems, what are those countries? They are Germany, Austria, and Russia, Soviet, which became the Soviet Union, but was originally the Russian Empire. What is the common... Now, Italy is the very interesting counterexample, because Italy, while fascist, and while they committed a huge amount of dictatorial you know, atrocities and crimes. They did kill opponents. They did imprison people in harsh conditions. But they never went to mass killing. They always killed individuals, specific people. They mostly preferred to imprison them. You know, they only killed them in certain circumstances, let's say. Mass killing was, never became a thing in Italian fascism. So what is the difference between what makes Italy not cross that line, but Germany, Austria, and Russia cross it? And for me, the, the answer, because it's the common thing, is that they are the losers of World War I, whereas Italy was on the winning side of World War I. So my hypothesis, it's just a hypothesis, but I, I think there may be some validity to it, is that in the victor nations, France, England, and Italy, the sort of discourse of victory was able to patch over the traumas to a certain extent and to allow a certain return to normality in terms of what was or wasn't appropriate behavior. Obviously, France and England did commit atrocities in the colonial world uh, before World War I and after World War I. 
but they got rid of a lot of their more violent elements precisely by sending them to the colonies so they could keep the violence out of Europe and in the colonies. Italy tried with uh, their colonial adventure, but it was a failure because they weren't very good at it. But the other societies, the ones that lost the war, really just broke down, collapsed, and found these insane myths, the myths of Stalinism, the myths of, of Nazism, as a way to pull their collectivity back together, but with such a level of trauma that the level of what was acceptable was completely different. And I think in very specifically in the German case, there was a very clear and overt reasoning, you know, that if the best, the fine flower of German society was sent to die at the front under British guns or French guns, uh, the young strongmen, the poets, the thinkers, the future chemists, the future physicists, the future lawyers, the future doctors, if the society could be allowed to sacrifice its best elements in the name of saving the nation, then of course getting rid of the worst elements makes perfect sense because we've already sacrificed the best, so why wouldn't we be allowed to sacrifice the worst? And there could be a similar reasoning. I mean, it wasn't quite formulated that way, but something like that kind of reasoning with the Soviet uh, excesses too. And, and Germany, after World War II, because of the trials, because of the punishment, because of everything that happened, in a way was able to heal from these traumas and become what we see today, which is a normal, fucked up democratic society with its problems, but certainly nowhere close to going back to that stuff. Whereas Russia never really healed, ever. I mean, the trauma of World War II, okay, they were the victors, but it was profound given the insane quantity of people killed. Everything was just kind of swept under the carpet after Stalin died, and they all just decided, let's just forget about it and be a little bit more vegetarian than we were before, but, you know, kind of. And then the trauma of the 90s, obviously, and the collapse of the society and the poverty and uh, the misery and the loss of empire provoked, or rather reawoke these traumas, leading us to the current situation in which, once again, um, crazed dictator is able to pull the society behind him to commit quite wide-scale atrocities in the name of the glory of it all. When you compare Nazism and fascism with Putinism, uh, I'm sure you, you probably find lots of similarities. If I tell you that one of the similarities, to continue your, your thought, is that this is a complex of the wounded empire. So empire which had its glory in the past. Mm and understands that it will never exceed it probably, but takes a last effort to, to get to this nostalgic past. Would you agree? To a certain extent, yes, yes. But, uh, I mean, we can see even in England on a much more, again, vegetarian scale, um, how profound the wounds of the loss of empire are, are because everything that's been playing out since 2016 and Brexit is all just about injured pride, lost empire, lost power, lost glory. This is all what's being agitated in England, you know, through these economic processes. Would you describe the current Russian regime as a, as a fascist state? I think I have to pass on that question. Uh, there's too many different definitions of fascism. No one really agrees on them. 
if we look at the I mean, not all dictatorships are fascists, okay? Um, obviously, there's all the communist ones, which have also elements of fascism in them. But, um, you know, what we don't see so much in Russia is, I mean, the spectacle is much more low scale, for instance. I mean, yes, they do do these things on Krasny Ploshet from time to time with Putin's speeches, and, and the Z is one of these more recent fascistic looking things but um it's i think it's a different level i think it works differently putin for instance germany nazi germany i'll, I'll tell you what i think is one very important difference is that nazi germany conceived thought and put into practice the total mobilization of society they wanted all of society to be nazi all of society to be committed and all of society to participate in the construction of the National Socialist State. Putin, from the very beginning of his regime, has wanted 99.99% of the Russian people to be apathetic and ignore the state, ignore the government, live their lives, make money, go on holidays to Portugal or Turkey or wherever they go on vacation, and not mingle in politics. So there's a very different aspect in terms of the mobilization which is playing out now, because now that they need mobilization, both military in the specific technical term, but also popular mobilization in terms of support for the war, they're not getting it because they're reaping what they've sown. People are still just apathetic and scared and don't want to get involved in this shit. That's very interesting because that means that Russian, Russian Putinism has been born from the cynicism of the Brezhnev era. Yes, completely. So uh, in, in a certain way, incredulity... Uh, uh, Tim Snyder calls it in his newest book, which will be published uh, later, but I had a, 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 a pleasure to see it, totalitarianism, which is a very interesting word. Huh, uh, because word. from totalitarianism, which believes in one value, you, comes to, you come to believing in no value. Mm -hmm. But then brings me back to this question about fascism, because my, I will tell you my version, and it's, I will like to ask you whether you agree with this. Of course, there are many, uh, many comparisons. Uh, the totalitarian regime, the control over, uh, of the, over the population, the, the dictatorial nature, the expansion of the, you know, uh, uh, expansion of this control and then um, annihilation of the freedom of speech, all these all this, uh, traits we know. But Nazism and, and fascism were playing with youth were playing with the idea of the future. They were conservatives, but conservative revolutionaries, right? So, they, so, they were, so were the Bolsheviks. Yes, they were attracting young people. Mm -hmm. There was something in them telling that, look, we are young. Mussolini and Hitler were young when they were mm -hmm. in power. Putin's regime is just gerontological yeah, regime. It's, it's, it's a regime of, of very old, <laughs> tired, disappointed uh, people. Would you agree with that? 100%, yeah. It's really a, n a new form of Brezhnevism, more than anything, much more than Stalinism, much more than they kill selected people like Brezhnev did. You know, they lock up other people that annoy them like Brezhnev did. They fight for preservation of their imperial idea like Brezhnev did with his stupid Afghanistan adventure. And they're going to end up like Brezhnev is, which did, which is old and dead, and their regime will collapse. I mean, so yeah, it's really... I mean, if they were going to reset the Soviet Union, they could have found a sexier period to go back to than, than the, the Brezhnev period, for sure. But that's what their genetics are. 
which kind of makes sense because they all come out of Andropov's KGB. So, I mean, that's, you know, they were all recruited uh, under Andropov. Um, I mean, Putin himself, but also Petrushev and the other guys. They're very much a product of Brezhnev and Andropov's uh, KGB. And so that's, that's their software. You lived in Russia for a certain amount of time. Uh, do you see hope in this society? Because for, for us Ukrainians, it's, it's sometimes very hard to see any, any, any light in there. But we, we see that many people who could have opposed the regime, they fled for different reasons, under persecution, or many people who support the war now fleeing the mobilization. And we don't really see those forces in the Russian society, except probably this entourage of Putin and uh, people who, who will do the coup d'etat eventually. We don't really see these forces. Do you see them? No, I don't either. I agree with you. I mean, they existed. Um, you know, when I lived in Russia, it was the early 2000s. Um, I spent two years in Chechnya in both wars, and then I lived another three years in Moscow uh, after Chechen war. And I had a lot of friends, you know, we partied, we went to clubs, and this and this and that. And I was always, I wrote about this recently uh, in one of my opinion pieces about the sort of apathy of my friends towards Chechnya at the time. It was really, really shocking to me. They would just, we didn't even want to hear me talking about it. Like, it wasn't their problem. I was like, guys, it's your country. You know, it's more your problem than my problem. No, no, no. The, the phrase I quoted, which I distinctly remember, was "Nada yelas tvoje Chechnya." Chechnya. So that apathy and that disinterest from public affairs has been there for a very, very long time. But next to that, there were incredibly, fantastically motivated and determined people, like my friends from Memorial, uh, Sasha Cherkasov and Oleg Orlov from the Human Rights Center in Memorial, Anna Politkovskaya in her day. Natalia Stemirova, I mean, you can name quite a lot of people. So like Galushkina, even Kovalyov. There always was this group, and Navalny managed to really create an organization that was strong and motivated and determined and was a genuine political force of quite committed people. Um, but they're always just way too weak in front of that state. And the, the state got stronger much, much, much faster than they can get stronger. And they were always behind the state. And the state was always able to either just ignore them or when it needed to, to crush them, which is what it's done now. And, and now they're just completely crushed. There is nothing left. I mean, Oleg Orlov, uh, who I know very well, is still in Russia and he's just waiting for them to put him in jail one day. That's all that's going to happen to him. He sees no other perspective, no other future, no other hope for him. But he doesn't want to leave, so he's just going to go to jail. Um, yeah, there's the, they've really done a very good job at destroying, the let's say, the live forces of this country. And the problem is when you destroy them, it's very hard to rebuild them afterwards. They don't just magically reappear when, you know, in the same way that Brezhnevism was made possible by the fact that Stalin had killed all the best people. And so the people who survived Stalin and who made it to the top after him were not at all the best people, either intellectually or morally or in any sense. In the same way, once Putin, and even if his whole regime disappears, Russia is going to be so impoverished uh, politically and intellectually. It's very hard to see who can pick up the pieces. You've been to several wars. You've been to Chechnya, you've been to Syria, now you're in Ukraine. I've, I've read your 
diary, Syrian about Syria, and it's it's a book very hard to read. Uh, do you see this as a kind of a the same war, the continuation of of the same approaches, or they are completely different? Well, first of all, there is a, a I mean. Syria is often listed as as one of Putin's war, but Putin actually intervened late in the game. You know, it started without him. It had its own internal dynamics. And then in 2015, he found it opportune to get involved and settle it on the Syrian, you know, on the Syrian government side. But uh, it can't at all be put in the same category as Chechnya or Ukraine, which are directly Russian colonial wars. Uh, obviously, there's a direct continuity between Chechnya and Ukraine. That's that's obvious um, at many, many levels in terms of the way the war is waged and conducted with the mass destruction of cities as pretty much the only tool available to the Russian military in terms of personnel in the sense that all the commanding officers of today's Russian army were junior officers during the two Chechen wars, and that's where they learned... Um, their job, I mean, how to fight and how to kill people. Um, Anna Politkovska wrote a great deal in her day about the feedback effect of the Chechen war on Russian society. And I always believe she was extremely right that all this violence was returning into the society. And I think now, 20 years later, we're seeing the effect of this poison um, in in the you know the way the Russian military is conducting its war on a military level, and in the way its soldiers are behaving in the fields uh, when they occupy zones. And I would agree with you that we we can interpret these wars as a continuation of this environment of violence which is present in the Russian society. That that's my hypothesis. I was in Russia the last time in. 89 when I was nine years old. Okay. <laughs> so it was still Soviet ahead. Union. So, uh, but my feeling is that, uh, is that the, this environment of violence is so present in the society, domestic violence, for example, like sons who suffer from tyranny of their parents or women who suffer from uh, sexual rape or violence from their, uh, from their husbands. And the only way out is to continue this violence. When you are a masochist, which is suffering from violence, the only thing you can do is either, either identify with a big subject who commits violence mm -hmm. and say to myself, okay, I'm not suffering, I'm actually a subject who is doing violence, or go and do this violence to others. Would you agree? I would very much agree with you. Uh, and to what you said about you know domestic violence, I would also add the prisons, especially, are a major factor in the propagation of violence in, in Russia. The fact that a quarter, I believe, of the male population currently alive in Russia has been in jail at some point in their lives, I mean, that's just insane. And we know the, the insanely perversive culture of violence in Russian prisons, the hierarchies, the castes, the... And all this gets put back into society as people go in and out of jail. But the big mystery, the really big mystery, is why did Ukraine turn out so differently? Because, you know, in Soviet time and in the 90s, Ukraine was the same. I mean, there was the same prison system, the same drunkenness, the same domestic violence, the same everything. All these social parameters existed in Ukraine, too, and Belarus, I mean, you know, everywhere. And in uh, former Soviet Union. Yet Ukraine managed to take a completely different path. And while there are a lot of problems remaining, I believe domestic violence is still a huge problem in Ukraine, which needs to be addressed at some point, although you know, with the war it's not a priority anymore. 
um, you know, they've, they've successfully managed to decrease the carceral population and bring it way, way, way down from the level, whereas Russians have always maintained it at an insanely high level. So what is it, what are the factors and the phenomenon that made it possible for Ukraine to come out of this and become a much more normal and norm-ruled society in which people are incentivized to behave better? I think my answer is that uh, there is the understanding that our way to the future is the major thing about it is the, to reduce the space for violence. I think the violence is the key concept. And uh, I think one of the problems of the uh, Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, was that it conceived modernization as increased space for violence. Therefore, you have gulags, repressions, etc. Whereas Western world was considering, uh, especially after World War II, was considering modernization and future as the process of reducing the space for violence. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about Ukraine, I definitely see this remnants of the Soviet past, the sadomasochistic past. Of course, they are still there. And uh, it's, it's a very gradual process process. We should not just perceive it as a miraculous difference with Russia, but it's, it it's gradually goes on. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very good point you're making, yeah, about the will to expand or reduce the space for violence. But uh, it'd be interesting to dig deeper into why Ukraine chose that path and how it managed it successfully. I mean, it, obviously, it's been with, you know, huge bumps and huge collateral damage. And, but still, it's, it's, I'm, I'm still curious, I mean, I'm, you know, if you look beyond the educated, intellectual, technical intelligentsia, bourgeois classes of the major cities, if you look at the mass of country, it's still a very peasant country with poor levels of education. But even those people don't behave like Russians. I mean, I've been in, in Ukrainian villages. It's not, you know, you don't see these guys drunk, staggering around, rolling in the mud, and then going home and whacking their wife with a frying pan. I mean, it happens, but not at all on the same scale as, as in Russia. And I'm just very curious about why, why it is. Is it because the children are more educated and send money home, and therefore the parents are just better off? I mean, is it just a virtuous cycle of like wealth building and perspective and hope at all levels of society? I, these are questions. I really don't know the answer, but I... I think at a certain point in Ukraine, violence become intolerable, at least in the in the media, in the public discourse. Therefore, one of the key events of Euromaidan was when students were beaten and there was one million people on Kyiv streets. And I just remember when when we it was impossible to go to Maidan uh, uh, on metro because the crowds were so, so huge and we need to go a few stations away from Universitet and then go with these crowds of people. But let me ask you maybe this question about Ukraine, how you perceive this country right now, how you, what, what you think its future can be. Because I don't want us to think only in a romantic way, like, okay, we will win this war. Of course, Ukrainians are sure that we will win this war. But at the same time, there are lots of problems that might appear, lots of divisions uh, between different people, people who... Uh, went to the front line, he, people who didn't go to the front line, people who stayed in the country, people who fled abroad, etc. Uh, you you also studied different societies uh, covered by the war. What are what what risks do you see? There are going to be huge challenges. I mean, 
let's assume that you win the war, uh, which I certainly believe is also, I also believe is going to happen. Uh, the country's going to be flooded with money, flooded. I mean, insane quantities of money are going to pour into Ukraine for reconstruction from Europe, from America, possibly from confiscated Russian assets, possibly even Russians will be paying reparations, who knows. There'll be insane amounts of money. And Ukraine's track record with managing large sums of money up to this point has not been a very good one. So the question is, who's going to control these flows of money and where are they going to go? Are they going to go to rebuild Lysyshansk, Severodonetsk, Mariupol, and all these destroyed cities? Or are they going to go into people's pockets to build dachas and buy yachts and airplanes and like in the old days, you know? So I think this is going to be one of the big, big, big challenges for Ukrainian society. Although I believe that civil society in this country has the intelligence, the energy, the will, and the capacity to control this problem. I mean, if, I think if people start going out of control with this money, there will be a huge sectors of society that will be fighting this. And so it's not just going to happen like it happened in the 90s. But it will be there, and it will be a problem. Um, the facts, the divisions that you mentioned, yeah. Um, I mean, Ukraine's always been a very divided country in many ways, um, geographically, linguistically, culturally, regionally, not just east-west, as you know, but you know, many subtle differences with the south, with I mean, all kinds of, between rural and urban, between. And of course, now there will be these new differences that you pointed out quite rightly, it's true. Um, and these differences induce behaviors. For instance, I've noticed in, in my interaction with people over the past seven months, both professionally and personally, that the most strident, the most hysterical, I, if I can use the word, um, sort of expressions of nationalism and hatred of Russia come from people who are the furthest from the actual fighting. And usually the really most over the top ones are the ones who are abroad. Um, and then the closer and closer you get to actual uh, where the war is happening, the more people have a measured and balanced discourse, I find. Um, and this is, I mean, it's a pretty common phenomenon. It's not just specific to Ukraine, obviously. It's, it's quite widespread. But again, there's going to be, you know, that, that tendency to overcompensate from the people who didn't fight or who left Ukraine compared with, you know, what the people who've actually stayed or fought have gone through, is going to be a huge problem of trauma, massive. I mean, both among civilian population and, uh, and the returning veterans. Uh, they're, they're going to have to be very, very careful with uh, mental health follow-up with demobilized veterans because when you have an army on that massive a scale with that insane amount of losses, I mean, look at the level of trauma and suicide in the American army. I think they lost 2,000 men in Iraq, right? Something like that. And look at the level of, of stress and trauma and suicide in their army. And now compare that to an army, no one knows how many you've lost, but you know we can easily assume that 20,000 men have been killed, at least probably, in the past seven months. And these are only military. Yeah, yeah, civilians. but I'm talking, I'm talking within trauma within the army. And then, of course, all the trauma inflicted on the civilians, which is also going to be massive. So there are going to be huge challenges. One thing which I think is positive is the fact that you've begun uh, European integration is going to give a framework. European integration is an incredibly technical process. Uh, it's incredibly 
rule-driven. And, you know, there are chapters that have to be met in terms of very specific legislation. It's quite complex. But that's going to canalize the way the reconstruction of the society is going to happen. It's going to be channeled in these European rules, which will, I think, limit the possibility for chaos, for... So the, in the sense, the fact that you're now a candidate country for Europe is going to be incredibly positive, not just in the final results, which will be being part of Europe, but the process will really help control uh, the way Ukraine comes out of the war and rebuilds after the war and, and becomes a better society, hopefully. Jonathan Littell, thank you so much for joining this podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. This was an episode of Thinking in Dark Times, a podcast series by Ukraine World. In this episode, I spoke to Jonathan Littell, a Franco-American writer and journalist, about war crimes in today's world, fascism and Putinism, and about Ukrainian and Russian societies. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Thinking in Dark Times is aiming to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.